Hey, it's Hayden with the Bible for the Busy Life podcast. On today's episode, we'll look at the historical books of the Bible, which is Joshua through Esther. I will further divide those into three categories uh, for time's sake and because I think it just makes sense. Uh, we have the pre-monarchical period, so before there was a king in Israel, which is Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Then you have the monarchical period, which is Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and the post-exile period, which is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The end of the books of Moses left the Israelites camped out in the plains of Moab outside the promised land. And Moses is gone now, so we're going to need a replacement. So that falls to a man named Joshua. So if you remember back in the book of Numbers, they sent 12 spies through the land to scout it out. And only two of the 12 spies came back saying that God will keep his promise and give the people the land. That was Joshua and Caleb. Well, this same Joshua now, some 40 years later, is about to step up and take the mantle from Moses and lead the people into the promised land. So the book of Joshua can be easily divided into two main parts. The first half is the actual conquering the land, second half being the allocation and settlement of the land. Probably the most famous event in the first half is the Battle of Jericho. Of course, Joshua fights the Battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Uh, there's been a series of excavations done there, most notably by a crew in the 1950s led by a woman named Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, so for some info on that, go and look up her research. It's actually it's great. It's fascinating. Um, in the second half, in the allocation of land, if you ever look at a map of the tribes of Israel and where they located, you'll note that two of the sons of Israel are not listed, that being Levi and Joseph, for different reasons. So Levi, of course, was set aside to be the priest and the ones in charge of the temple. And so God says that rather than getting land, he himself would be their inheritance. Doesn't sound like a bad deal. Uh, and Joseph will not be listed because... Instead, his two sons will each get an allotment of land because in that time, uh, the firstborn son would get a double portion of the inheritance. So if a man had two sons, he would divide his land three ways. You have the oldest son, two parts, and the, old, the youngest son, one part. So even though Joseph was the 11th as far as birth order, each of the first 10 sons would, uh, due to some decision made, be disinherited of his double portion, and so it would pass on to the next next one in line until Joseph, number 11, is the first one to actually be able to receive the double portion inheritance. So each of his sons will receive an allotment of land, and so they will get a huge amount of territory. The book of Judges is an absolute dumpster fire in the history of the nation of Israel. When Joshua dies, he does not leave a successor or designate one, and so one repeated statement throughout the book of Judges is that at that time there was no king in Israel. Every man just did what was right in his own eyes. And so even though in theory Israel is a theocracy at this time ruled by God, so many people are abandoning God's laws that it is in practice and for all intents and purposes an anarchy. And so one of the big themes of the book seems to be pointing to the need for leadership for a king in Israel. Throughout the book, you get this cycle of the Israelites abandoning God, uh, their enemies coming and oppressing them, God raising up someone called a judge to help overthrow the enemy, and then a time of peace, and then the cycle repeats. Not only is it a cycle, but it's a downward spiral as things progressively get worse. By the end of the book, we have a story involving a city called Gibeah, and what happens there is almost the exact same thing that happens in the city of Sodom right before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And so even today, 
when we're trying to portray a city as particularly bad, we often compare it to Sodom and Gomorrah. How much more in this day? So the book seems to be showing that the nation of Israel has gotten so bad that it's comparable to these cities that are known for just immorality. And the final chapters involve civil war breaking out. So at this point, they're not even being oppressed by their surrounding enemies. It's an internal problem. And the book itself is just crying out for leadership for a king to come in and set things straight. And then we get to Ruth. Ruth is an absolute breath of fresh air after everything we looked at in Judges. It occurs during the time of Judges, so we know that not everything was bad going on at the time. But Ruth is basically a love story between two feuding nations. Uh, this is basically Romeo and Juliet millennia before Shakespeare was born. But fortunately for the entire world, this one has a happy ending. Boaz is an Israelite, and Ruth is a Moabite. And to understand why that's a problem, we need to go back a few hundred years. We didn't talk about it back when we were in Genesis, but Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot had two daughters, and for whatever reason, he did not want his daughters to marry. Uh, but of course, in this time, and really all times, I guess, people often want to have children, they often want to carry on the family name, and these two women wanted to do exactly that. So they came up with a plan. If we can't have husbands... We'll get dad drunk and have a baby with him. And so that's what they do. And even in a time when marrying your not-that-distant cousin was fairly standard, grandpa-dad stuff was not okay. And so God tells the Israelites that they are not supposed to intermarry with these people. Uh, the name Moab is actually kind of a reference to that. So Ab in Hebrew is, is like father uh, you often hear the term Abba, which is kind of a you know informal, more personal version. Like we have dad and daddy, they have Ab and Abba. So Moab means from father, kind of a reference to who the donor, maybe we call him, who he was. Over the next couple hundred years, their relationship does not improve. Uh, Moab is actually listed among the oppressors in the book of Judges. And so here during this time, we have someone from each of these countries getting married. And not only do they marry, but Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of the King David, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. So that means that David was not fully Jewish. And of course, Jesus, from the line of David, also not 100% Jewish. Which biologically means nothing, but theologically means everything. This is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament that the promises and covenant with Abraham are not just for Abraham and his people. God promised that through the Israelites, he would bless the world. And here's one of the clearest pictures, one of the earliest pictures of God bringing in the other nations into the covenant with Abraham. So if you're listening to this and you are not Jewish, this is exciting. This is a very early, very beautiful picture of what Paul will later call the engrafting of the Gentiles in the new covenant. That those who are not sons of Abraham will be brought in to the people of God. And that'll do it for our discussion of the pre-monarchical period of the historical books. I'm going to go in and apologize if I don't post for a while. Today is baby day. We're scheduled to be induced at 5 o'clock. This is our first baby to make it to term. So we are excited, nervous, and everything in between. And any of you who have kids know that I may not have a lot of time to focus on this for a little bit. So I apologize. I'll do the best I can. And hopefully at some point we will move on to the monarchical period and also have a discussion of the secular empires 
they rise and fall during this time to help us understand more of what happens as the uh, Jewish people interact with them. So hopefully that'll be helpful. I appreciate you listening. We'll see you next time.